Chapter twenty four of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty four On the Wing. Morton's surprise at hearing that Sir Everard and his daughter were on the point of starting for the south was as great as it was unpleasant. His first impulse when Dulcie told him where she was going was to go with her, but Sir Everard interfered. "'Not for the world, my dear Morton,' he said. "'Your prospects must not be blighted because I have a weak chest. The high clear election will be on early in February, and you have made up your mind to stand. You will have plenty of work to do in the meantime if you want to get in.' for from all i hear there will be a pretty sharp contest on the liberal side and you as a new man will have to fight your hardest no morton you look after your political interests while dulcie and i ramble along the riviera and cross over to algiers for a quiet month or so among the moors we shall be back if all go well with the swallows that is a long time for me to look forward to sir answered Morton, pale and grave, with a glance of mournful tenderness at Dulcie, who stood by her father's side, her hand clasped in her lover's, her heart aching with a divided love. How am I to live without Dulcie all through three dreary months? You manage to exist without her a good many years, said the baronet, with a touch of cynicism. Well, because I did not know the world contained such a pearl, but knowing her, having won her how am i to bear my life without her let me give up this election and come with you sir everard it will be like a foretaste of our honeymoon mm, such joys should never be anticipated i have admired and sympathised with your ambition morton it places you apart from and above the ruck of young men i should despise you if you could surrender your hopes so lightly and i think before you had been away from england a week you would despise yourself if i did i should at least be happy no morton self-contempt and happiness are incompatible you would be wretched oh you must not come with us morton indeed you must not said dulcie i should hate myself if for my sake you sacrificed your noble ambition she looked at him with fond admiring eyes as if he were a hero and a martyr as if until he arose with the desire to legislate for his country nobody had ever hoped or cared or striven for the welfare of mankind so after some further argument it was decided that morton was only to go with the travellers as far as paris and that he was to spend the next month in preparing the ground for his election the day after sir everard's return from london was saturday and it was on sunday evening that this conversation took place as father and daughter sat by the fire in dulcie's morning-room with morton in his accustomed seat on the opposite side of the hearth he had come over to fairview directly after dinner leaving his womankind to drive to evening service at highclere they were tremendous church-goers and never missed a service that they could manage to attend the lovers parted mournfully that evening between ten and eleven in the windy avenue dulcie having wrapped herself in her cloak at morton's request and accompanied him as far as the gate 
how little i thought that this was hanging over me when we were so happy together on christmas night said morton discontentedly when we were so happy echoed dulcie pouting a little you mean when you and lady frances grange were so happy together i was not honoured with much of your society dulcie can you be jealous cried morton amazed i think i could if i tried very hard faltered dulcie oh my darling such a thought is unworthy of you oh as for poor little fan he went on speaking of lady frances as if she were a favourite dog oh, she and i have a kind of adopted sister and brotherhood which is more familiar than friendship she trusts me wholly as i trust her and she knows that there is only one woman in the world i love or ever can love but don't let us waste the precious moments talking nonsense dulcie i want to know more about this sudden indisposition of your father it is not sudden morton poor papa has been suffering at intervals for years he would not tell me anything about it for fear he should grieve me but careful as he has been to hide his pain from me i know that he has suffered he has had days of extreme depression and sleepless nights i have been watchful of him and have felt many a pang of fear but i tried to hide my anxiety now the london doctor has told him that he has a mortal malady his life can only be prolonged by extreme care oh, can you blame me morton if i wish to do all that love can do to cherish and comfort him no dearest i cannot blame you but i wish you were my wife why because in that case either i should go with you or you would not go at all but you are going with us as far as paris oh a fig for paris what is that beggarly stage of the journey four and twenty hours at most and stretched to that only by dawdling a little at the lord warden it's a contemptible boon to be allowed to escort you to paris well if you're disagreeable you shall stay at tangley the church clock struck eleven and they parted half in playfulness and half in sorrow the travellers were to start early the following afternoon by the highclere express dulcie devoted the morning to wandering about the house looking fondly at those home treasures that she was to leave for a time then she went to her own room and put in order drawers and wardrobes which had been disordered in the hurry of packing her maid had had as much as she could do to get everything ready in time for this sudden journey she and sir everard's valet were to accompany the travellers nothing could be more marked than the contrast between the two servants emma pugh a simple-minded ruddy-cheeked rustic and stanton a man of the world a soldier of fortune speaking half a dozen continental languages and as much at home in any corner of europe as at osthorpe ready for any adventure to him the idea of starting for algeria was a delight to emma it was a source of fear and dread some one had officiously informed her that algiers was on the coast of africa and the very name of the dark continent had inspired horror and aversion oh, isn't africa a dreadful place mr stanton she asked a savage sandy country where there's nothing but poisonous swamps and niggers and lions climbing up trees or perhaps it is the travellers that climb to get out of the way of the lions oh algiers isn't half a bad place answered stanton in his easy way 
capital climate fine sea picturesque costumes and decent hotels and as to lions well yes i dare say we might have a chance of seeing a lion hunt this was enough for emma pugh from this moment lions roamed up and down the streets of algiers in the fancy picture of that city which her distempered imagination set before her and now emma had done her work and all dulcie's belongings were packed and in the hall ready to be carried off to the station and having done her duty miss pugh much disturbed and excited by the journey before her had gone off to employ her last leisure hours in daleshire in taking leave of her parents aunts uncles sisters and cousins thus dulcie was left alone in rooms which already had a deserted look her bedroom was the same which her mother had occupied in her brief span of married life a lovely room with wide square windows overlooking the lawns and shrubberies the low-lying lake and the wide expanse of landscape beyond at one end of the room there was an oriel fronting south and in this sunny window was dulcie's favourite seat here she had a little table with an easel here she painted flowers or fruit with a delicacy of touch and tone rare in an amateur hand here she worked or read or wrote through many a busy morning it was the room in which she had been born in which her mother had died sir everard had removed himself to the furthest end of the house after his wife's death and had never since that hour entered this room save once when dulcie was ill but for dulcie there was no terror in this chamber where death had come where the young and lovely wife had lain in her last slumber it was hallowed rather by that sad memory she loved to look at the objects on which her mother's eye had rested to sit in the low tapestried armchair which had been her mother's favourite seat to handle the old china cups and saucers on the mantelpiece the duodecimo volumes of classic prose and poetry on the hanging bookshelves by the bed knowing that her mother's touch had rested on them to-day she moved slowly about the room looking wistfully at familiar objects wondering idly when she would see them again presently she paused half in absence of mind before an old japanese cabinet and began to pull out the drawers one by one looking listlessly at their contents in one she saw a few old letters of her own notes of invitation programmes of concerts at highclere rubbish of all kinds in another there were shells in another some withered flowers gathered a year or two ago in her alpine rambles in another worn-out paint-brushes and half-empty colour-tubes another and this she handled reverently had been undisturbed since her mother's death she had laid a folded sheet of tissue-paper over the contents trifling as they were the mere jetsam and flotsam of daily life to-day in sheer idleness of mind she lifted the paper and began to rearrange the trifles which her loving hands had carefully covered years ago when she first took possession of her mother's room what frivolous relics of a departed life they were yet how suggestive of youth and elegant pleasures a broken fan of delicately carved ivory and painted vellum graces and sylphs disporting in a world of flowers a long white glove embroidered with gold still bearing the impress of the little hand that had worn it a dijon rose which still exhaled the faint suggestion of a long departed sweetness two or three pieces of rare old lace yellow with age a few letters closely written and crossed from married sisters 
a handful of dead violets, and lastly, something which filled Dulcie with wonder, simple as the thing was in itself. A yellow ribbon, the very colour and texture of that old-fashioned ribbon which Dulcie had found on the hearthrug in Dora Blake's sitting-room. She sat with the ribbon in her hand, about a yard in length, not soiled or worn, but with folds that showed it had been tied, perhaps as a loop for that broken fan. Yes, it was exactly the same ribbon. There could be no doubt of it. Either Dora Blake must have got her piece from Lady Courtney, or Lady Courtney must have got hers from Aunt Dora. Unless there was a rage for this kind of ribbon at that time, thought Dulcie. Oh, but that can hardly be, for I'm sure this ribbon is more than twenty years old. It's the sort of thing our great-grandmothers wore. Well, it is a small mystery to worry one's brain about. Miss Blake must have given a piece to Mamma, or Mamma to Miss Blake. That is certain. She remembered Aunt Dora's somewhat confused and troubled manner when she had talked about the yellow ribbon. Could such a trifle as that involve some sorrowful memory, some association full of pain and sadness? Vain to sit wandering there. Dulcie lifted the ribbon to her lips before she put it back in the drawer. Poor little ribbon, stray leaflet from the past. I'm sure you are half a century old. You had curious, half-tender associations for my dear mother, I dare say, when she wore you to tie up a bunch of roses or as a loop for her fan. You may have belonged to some maiden aunt, a famous belle, perhaps, who died in her youth, or to some dear old indulgent grandmamma who wore yellow ribbons in her cap. For me, your history is a blank, as mysterious as the life of Cheops. She closed the drawer and locked the cabinet and then resumed her progress through the rooms, till it was time for luncheon, after which hurried meal the carriage came to the door, and Morton arrived with his travelling bag. It was a pleasant journey for Dulcie and Morton, in spite of the parting that laid before them at the end of the way. For these two it was happiness to be together. Sir Everard seemed more cheerful when he had turned his back upon Fairview. He talked about the coming election, discussed Morton's hopes, and gave him some good advice, which the young man fully appreciated. They stayed a couple of days in Paris to please Morton, went the round of churches and galleries which all had seen before, but which Dulcie was delighted to see in her lover's society, drove in the wintry bois, saw all the world of fashion and beauty, wasted a good deal of money at Boissier's, buying artistic baskets and dainty satin boxes filled with sugar-plums, dined at the last restaurant à la mode, and wound up with a delightful evening at Molière's classic theatre, where the elegant Favard and the seductive Delaunay played an idyllic drama by de Musset. Those two days were full of delight for Morton. They were only too brief, and then on the evening of the second he drove with Sir Everard and his daughter to the Lyon station, and saw them seated in the train which was to carry them to the south. "'I shall come to you directly the election is over,' he said, "'if you have not returned before then.' "'My dear fellow, Parliament will meet by the time the election is over, "'and you will have your senatorial duties to attend to,' replied Sir Everard. "'Morton stood by the carriage door, with Dulcie's hand clasped in his, till the last moment. "'It was their first parting. "'They looked at each other with pale, pained faces, tearless but despairing.' 
then came the guards bustling along authoritative military of aspect then the rush and turmoil of people who could not find places then a shriek a whistle their clinging hands parted and dulcie was gone morton went gloomily back to the shabby half-built boulevard outside the big station what a horrid place paris is for a man to be alone in he said to himself as he walked back to the bristol i shall be off at seven to-morrow morning he was at tangley by eleven o'clock on the following night moody and out of spirits feeling that all the delight and hopefulness of his life was gone how fondly how intensely she loves him he said to himself thinking of dulcie and her father would to god that i could trust him as she trusts him that i could honour him as she honours him yes for her sake i would be blind if heaven would grant me the gift of blindness but i cannot forget how he shrank from answering my question that night how he put me off with generalities with indignant assertions that evaded the point at issue End of chapter 24